Well, hello, fancy meeting you here. Welcome to the second edition of what I'm forced to call the big interview with Graham Hunter for the sole reason that Backpage Press have kidnapped my entire Paul Weller CD and record collection. The first edition was with Gary Neville and before we go any further, thanks to all of you, not only those who downloaded and listened, but so, so many of you who gave such positive, enthusiastic, forthright feedback. It makes us very satisfied to know that you feel the same about football discussion held that way. But let's be truthful. When you get Gary Neville and he engages for 47, 48 minutes in a chat about football, that's the kind of podcast you're going to get. I claim no credit. This second edition is with Gordon Strachan. He intersects with the Neville profile because Gordon is a man of passion, intelligence, wit, about football, a high achiever. If you're too young to have seen him playing live, then my commiserations, he was the Andres Iniesta of his time. In fact, if you had a time machine and you dropped him into the Pep Guardiola Barcelona side, or indeed that of today, he'd fit right in. He'd be a starter. A man of creative, brave intelligence on a football pitch, worth the entry to a match on its own. In this chat, he talks about why he locks himself in his garage with a football and what he does there, what he's learned from it. He talks about anger, anger in football, his own anger, how it drove him, but also the anger that he witnessed, a raw, blazing, young anger in Sir Alex Ferguson, the, the millions he reckoned we'd all pay to be able to witness it, but also how relationships with Sir Alex Ferguson can scar a person for life. He's very, very good on Leeds winning the title, Eric Cantona's arrival and the need for his departure. He's terrific too about his preference for Andres Iniesta over Leo Messi. When he talks about football in its current state and when he talks about him believing that football is better now than it has ever been, you'll be riveted, I promise you. We tail off into territory that I think Gordon handles like no other. Very, very witty on punch-ups in Australian football and a crying football psychologist. I love these chats. I love them because they scratch an itch. I'm talking to people who've got a similar outlook on the game I love to me and I hope to you. Listen to this. I'm certain you're going to enjoy it. Gordon, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Like it's a pleasure to watch you. I want to start a little bit by saying I'm not sure if you were able to watch the football this week, but I was at the camp now and I watched a player who's gifted and graceful and Andrews Iniesta do things that startled and excited a crowd that's been watching him do those things for ten years. Rather than talking about the club and, and the team, Andrews Iniesta. Are there things about his football that draw your eye? Are you a particular appreciator of him? And, and when you watch him, what is it you see in Andrews Iniesta? What do you see? I see someone who's in love with the game. Someone who gets great enjoyment of playing alongside great players and watching great players and thinking they're great players. And he's oblivious to the fact that he's up there with them. I think there's a humility about him. Funny enough, most people I talk to always talk about Messi. That I drag them to Iniesta. I first really came across him when Celtic played um, Barcelona many, many years ago. I think Barcelona had been known as a top, top side. But it was the first time I think they'd been kind of live on British football and British soil against 
uh, Celtic. And, uh, I'm sure the midfield was Jaya Turi, Zavi and Iniesta. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had Paul Hartley, Barry Robson and Ian Other in there. And I remember um, during the game, Barry Robson saying to me, what do you do? <laughs> we can't get them. I just kept going, we'll just run about. Try and bat into one or two of them, annoy them. And after the game, the guy came in with the stats. And I've got to remember that when we played Man United, did 340 passes. Benfica were something like 360. AC Milan were, I don't know. Maybe running about the same. And he says, uh, I said, you got the stats? He went, yeah, they had seven, just over 700 passes. I went, your machine's broken. I went, have a look at that again. <laughs> <laughs> but what they've got, and Iniesta's got, and I was trying to talk to kids now, that we will be able to pass the ball to a certain extent, British clubs. But when people get close to us, we do not have the ability to beat people the way anybody in Barcelona does, especially in Iniesta, midfield and Xavi. If you watch British teams playing, we'll pass to a certain extent. Then we'll have a hopeful ball somewhere or a flick. It doesn't happen that way at Barcelona because they want to give you the best ball they can possibly give you to continue the move. And they're brave enough to be on the ball and beat somebody. I mean, anybody in the Barcelona side, they beat anybody at any given time in any space. We do not have that in Britain. People are looking for the answers and just, just have a look at it. It's quite simple, really. Use your eyes and you'll see it. It'll stand out that they can beat anybody at any time also got the ability and decision making when to pass it, when to beat people. I watched Barcelona play against Man City mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago and I sat with my two boys at 36, 32 and Messi was just incredible. I said to them, as you're watching this, remember where you were when you seen this. Mm -hmm. We're all sitting together because we're now watching Messi, Magnificent and Joe Hart putting the best goalkeeping display I've ever mm -hmm. seen on at the same time. And when you watch Barcelona, Sometimes, in a strange way, it can get a bit tedious because it all seems that right, the same thing's happening all the time. There's nothing happening here. And then something happens every game that you've never seen. Yeah. Something will happen, like Iniesta taking the ball, he's in 18-yard box the other day there, turning somebody with his face, his back to the opposite goal, beating three people, and the crowd building up, building up. Now the hard part comes after he's beat three because it's quite an instinctive thing that he's got a pass to make. I would say... Nine times out of ten, people are going to misplace that pass because I've got excited. There's the final one, and that's the pass that counts to be a great player. And that's what he's come away with, a pass that Neymar doesn't even need to break his step. <laughs> I, I, I actually think that we live in a great age with everything, technology, whatever you want to call it. There's so many things going on here that you couldn't imagine 40 years ago. I'm also seeing things that I couldn't imagine in the football field 40 years ago. I didn't think football could ever get as good as this when I see some players play. You've got to ask me why? Well, obviously you've fascinated me. I was going to ask, is there any way that you mean such technique at such high speeds repetitively or not? Have I got the wrong... No, imagination, flair, ah. things I never thought I'd see possible. I've seen people years ago, 40 years ago, it was basically Jimmy Johnson, What you go one way, you go the other way. But beating people. Mm -hmm. Now there's all sorts of ways of beating people with the technique that they've been brought on. And saying that, what's allowed that to happen is the fact that the pitches are far superior than what they were 40 years ago. The laws of football have changed. The no pass back rule, you've got to play, the game's become longer, there's more space. And the fact is the tackling. Protection. And that's where we struggle in Britain sometimes, especially in Scotland, I think, because teams used to come and play the Scottish national side and we used to kick 10 bells at them. That can't happen now. No. The days of the midfield destroyer is gone. You need to be a midfield thinker who you can intercept and counter-attack. So all that has come together like the perfect storm to create Barcelona and the players that are there. 
they're at one with the ball. They're at one with the ball. The ball feels part of them mm-hmm. at any time. And again, that's what we we are missing now. Most football players in Britain are not one with the ball. These guys, I think the ball, it's like a part of them. It's like me moving my hand to pick up a bit of chocolate again there. <laughs> they can do that. Now I'm going to change the order that was in my mind because right. we've had a question, we've had a chat arriving here. You've got the exact understanding. Apart from that, we'll get on to your innate ability and how you develop yourself as a great footballer, in my opinion. But you know exactly what's lacking in any nation, not just Scotland or England, in order to become a little bit more close to that. The ball is part of me. I love yeah. the ball. I know what to do with it. You know what's lacking and what yeah. can be done. It's quite simple. Hours. Hours yeah. and hours and hours. I was in university the other day and I was speaking. If you want to be better than that group of players, you work twice as hard as them. And that doesn't mean just running and footballers running about balls and doing and it's working with the ball all the time. And as I said, I, I've studied football and kids' academies for 10, 15 years now. And I do believe it's all to do with the ball and the number of touches. There's something fundamentally wrong that a kid can go from Aberdeen to Kilmarnock, play a game of football, get 10 minutes of football, get back on the bus or car my mum and dad go back up the road and spend nine hours to get eight touches of ball. That is all wrong. The game is not about where you run, what you run. That comes after you've mastered the ball. I think I gave you an example of, I watch it at the academy players every Sunday. The better players get 120 touches. That's after travelling, the distances to travel, which is a waste of time as well. That can be used to play with the ball. And then I asked my wife to count number of, well, tell me when in half an hour was up when I was in the garage and I kick a ball off a wall and could control it with my left foot, kick it my right foot, come back off one wall, kick it my, stop it my right, kick my left. I can do it with various outside, inside, and I got a thousand touches in half an hour. That's equivalent to eight games of academy football I've got in half an hour. Until you master that ball, then all the rest of it's a waste of time. Because we want to make runs, as Iniesta does off the ball and all these guys, but if the ball's not to come there, then you've got a problem. So uh, I think it's a lot simpler than what people think it is. In other words, we've both talked about if you see a football, you have it's to like, touch it's like it. It's just, just the same thing. The Korean thing, I read it in the book, the, the Korean golfers, women golfers now. They went along to where most of them train and asked the coach, well, what is, your, what is the swings? He said, we don't coach swings here. He said, well, what's your secret? He said, quite simple. They come in at 7 o'clock and they leave at 8. They play golf between 7 and 8, 11 hours or 13 hours a day. That's what they do. They stop for a break, obviously. So the argument is if you've got any innate talent whatsoever and if your brain is able to assimilate learning lessons, yeah. but you, you work can, that but, hard. But you can work the problems out yourself. You can work the problems out yourself. You can work where the spin comes off a wall. If it's come, there's, there's three ways a ball can come at you. It's spin mm-hmm. towards you, spin away from you. As a neutral, there's a lackey spin. You have to switch your brain to three different things. You're now talking about your thousand touches off yeah. two walls in a garage right. in a tight space. That's the same yeah. with golf. They just let them play and work out their own sort their own problems out for their own swing. I remember an international player come to Leeds once and I watched him and he crossed the ball the same way all the time, no matter what spin come to him. And I tried to explain to him, it's, you don't have to do so much work if the ball spins, it's like snooker. Ball goes over, you spin it one way, it goes back the reverse way. But it's all down to more hours. As a kid, that's all I did, play with a ball off a wall. If there's no mates, I sometimes didn't have a ball, I'd just go and ask my mate if he was coming out, I knew he wasn't coming out, so I asked his mother if I could have the ball. You know, and just go and practice. But it's the most addictive thing in the world. I know that what's happened is that society's changed. Computers weren't invented there. There was no internet. Okay, that's, yep. that's all fine. But again, we cheated because we were talking about this before we came in the door here. The ball is an addictive thing. You have to touch it. You have to feel it. And once you have it, you want to keep it and you want to play with but it. You, where's that gone? But you, you have to be the master of the ball rather yes. than the other way about. 
Yes. Because some of them, the, the balls and control of people because they don't know how to master it. So the ball's won it. It bounces up and goes into funny positions. Then take me back to childhood. Then on this same theme that we're talking about, how much to you of that ability that you had that got me off my seat throughout your playing career, how much of that was innate? How much did other people teach you? How much did you teach yourself? Nobody taught me how to pass the ball and control it. it was what, what, was it in there, in your head? Just experimenting. Aha. Uh-huh. So you worked at it? Just experimenting. There was nobody taught me how to kick a ball or control a ball at any time. See, I grew up with stories reading about Colin Bell. With a tennis ball, because that's all he could yeah. afford. Off a wall. Tennis ball off a wall. Backwards, yeah. forwards. Trying to control it. Chest, thigh, either foot. Latterly, I've learned about what the Spurs technique was in the middle 60s, early 70s, with this famous garage they had at the training ground with zones painted wherever you had to do, actually equivalent to what you're doing in the garage now, which is hit that mark, take well, it on the volley, hit that mark. Well, they're doing it at Dortmund and uh, Hoffenheim and Qatar, where they're standing in a, in a cage, and the ball's fired at you from all different angles. Ah. And you control it, and, and just as you control it, a light will flash somewhere, and you've got to be able to put the ball through there. But that costs one and a half million pound, software and everything. It's a lot simpler than that as well. All you need is a ball, a wall, drive the ball off the wall, you can have different spins, you can have a look at the spin coming when you're hitting the outside of your foot to your inside of your foot or just neutral through it. And I've always said to my son, when you're coaching the kids, why don't you just have 15 minutes at a wall where you pass it back and forward? Volley it back and forward, see how many volleys you can keep it up with inside, outside. You'll get all these touches in. We're so, we're so obsessed now, it's like they tell them that we've got coaches, so you have to coach. Produced all these coaches with all sorts of badges and you have to coach, and you have to put a disc there, a disc there, a disc there. I remember watching Kiddies Academy, where there's five different positions before you had a shot at goal, and yet everybody had to make a complete pass before you had a shot. And after two passes, it broke down, so the coach went on and spoke to the guy about, for about over a minute, how to control it, do this, do that. Well, the rest of them are standing freezing. You know? That'll encourage you, that'll make you love the game, that'll make you come back. Yeah, so um, I think we really should strip it right back to the bone. Now, strip it right back and play games and monitor the kids and step in every now and then and go, well, I bet you have tried that. Then back in again and playing and playing and playing and let them play, let them bang into each other, get them knocked over. Am I overly romantic and evangelical when I say that the football that, in my opinion, Barcelona and Spain particularly have played over the last six, seven, eight years, well, I've had kids growing up with that same attitude as you've got now, which maybe there's been a gap. There's obviously been a gap in Scotland, maybe in Britain. For well, between the 80s and the, the late 70s, 80s, 90s, the English football was strong in Europe. I would imagine with Liverpool winning things. and mm-hmm. No doubt about it, the 80s where I played in England in the early 90s wasn't good fair. But we showed kids who were growing up then that long and direct and it wasn't about keeping the Well, ball. to be fair, long did it come from because of the offside rule, where... You know, I remember playing Leeds United versus Sheffield United, Dave Bassett versus Hal Wilkinson. We had two linesmen flagging for offside at the same time. Two back fours with 15 yards for each other. You know, so the game has developed since it's got better since then. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But we have the British football, we've got problems because... Well, we've not got problems because we live in a society where we think we're really poor, but we're not really poor. Society tells us now, if you've not got a mobile phone, if you've not got Sky Telly, you're boarding on the red line. If you take the Champions League, I think most of the players, nearly 50%, come from Brazil mm-hmm. or African-related players. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say African, it's like Fellaini, who's Belgian, but Algeria. That, they come from a hard-working area. They have to get on with it. Driven by self-betterment. 
possibly uh, with people to feed and help back exactly. send money away. But no academy to succeed. No academy, just, just football. Play just football. And I keep saying we have to go back to that. Yeah, get on with it. Play, play all the time. And people tell me, they tell me they're having too much football. No, they're not. There's not enough football for kids in Britain. Absolutely not enough football. They should be playing at lunchtime, after school, for the school, for the, the youth team or whatever. It's, it's a basic. What we've done is we've created so many coaches that we feel we have to coach them. And they're not really wanting that. All they want is monitored and let them play the game. Used, I still want to come back. Use the word bravery. And okay, we both agree that what's happened is that the hatchet men are no longer. But yeah. that word bravery, Pep Guardiola used to use it a lot about Messi and about Iniesta. And it's about being brave in all circumstances to show, to take the ball, to do something with it. Because they still get kicked. Oh, still it's, 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 still, it's not still a pain take a hit. Game. No, no, not at all. But it's not as violent as it was. So there's been a change. But that bravery, is, you meant that word, well, I, I think it's true. That, that but there's a, it's not a physical bravery. It's a bravery to take the ball. And show with, and take a risk. No, no, no. The, the consequences of uh, losing it. Yeah. There's a bravery. You know, it's, it's went from a physical real bravery, like Maradona had to put up when people mm. let up early, but people were coming and, and hurting you physically. That was... A, and I played in the days. But now there's a, you know, you also got the bravery of taking the ball like any Esther and rolling somebody 25 yards from his own goal. He's now thinking, if I can beat him, I can start the move here. But he's also saying, if I get beat there. You know, so there's, there's a consequence bravery as well where you have to take it on board that if you make a mistake, it could be a goal here. So there's another bravery then that can affect you because the crowd might go for you. So you have to take that, all that on board. Not just a physical bravery, but a consequences bravery. I was out of the country, so I admit, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I did a little bit of research, but did you have a player of that, that psychology, that ilk in Nakamura? Did he have yeah. things that resemble what yeah. we've been talking about? Yeah, Maloney was like that as well. Yeah. Cults boy, of course, and if anybody doesn't yeah. know what Cults is. Brown, like Brown is the same thing. He'll take a ball and roll people. He plays in the Kenny Carrick role, but Carrick's always seen passes. Brownie will roll people in, in difficult areas because of his physical strength. So I'll have them, yeah. But Naka didn't have that physical strength. Naka, Naka, Naka had what the Barcelona players is. He, he thinks four passes ahead of everybody. He'll work out there's a possibility of A, B, C, D. There's four passes maybe each or three passes. Then he works out what is the likelihood. Say there's four passes. It might break down with that one. I'll no bother going in there. If he sees the three passes, knows he's got three players he can trust, he can walk in there. So you have to compute all that, and that's what the Barcelona players do. What kind of person was he? I tell you, I asked because Stuart Baxter went and coached in Kobe Osaka, and he brought Michael Loudrop out, and it was a community that had just been devastated by the terrible, terrible earthquake. And he enjoyed his time, but both he and, to a far greater extent, Loudrop found the Japanese personality difficult to get to apply to the way that football coaching, football playing, needed to be. Now, things have moved on. That was the mid-90s. Japan's a very increasingly powerful and interesting football nation. Do you think, in encountering him, did he have to go through a cultural change? Was he a natural footballer? Has there been a change of psychology? He was okay. He, he, he came from Japan, but he went to Italy first. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of stopover before he got... It wasn't like straight from Japan right to Scotland. I think that that might have been a... <laughs> that would have been a cultural shock. <laughs> so he stopped off in Italy with Regina, with the, the, the crazy president was there. So I think anything after Regina wasn't it too bad. Um, Stuart said that they were very dutiful. If, you, if as a coach you said, stand on the back post, yeah, that's what you, they did. You, you and would they take, didn't, take it literally. Or, yes. Yeah, you take it literally. But no, by the time I got, they'd moved on since then. They definitely had moved on. But again, you're talking about hard work. He was always, him, McGeady, 
matter of fact, there was a lot of them. There was a big group coming, and he was the one of the first to kick it off, training at half past eight in the morning, doing weights. And that came out after every game at Celtic Park, because you could do it at Celtic Park. He'd come off the game, sit and listen to what I had to say, change again, put another training gear on, go up the stairs, and do weights for about 45 minutes. And because of that, he built his, the doctor said he was a phenomenon, because he had a medial ligament problem, which is four weeks, six days for him because he says that his core strength and fitness was unbelievable. That's the same as we're talking about the determination and the will to master the ball, to change your touches, yeah. but also to change your physique. It's about an attitude, it's about yeah. a psychology. We touched a lot on, on continental football there. You know, you nearly went abroad. Is there a regret that you didn't end up playing abroad? Would it have changed you as a footballer? It would have changed where I was um, at this moment sitting talking to you. In that, you'd have maybe stayed on living abroad? I have no or? idea, but I wouldn't <laughs> be here the day yeah. enjoying what I'm doing. Yeah. I wouldn't be, I might not be the Scotland captain. Uh, I, I might have played for Leeds and won trophies. I um, might have captained my country. I might have been the Celtic manager. Mm-hmm. I might have been Southampton manager. For all these things, I think if I, I maybe went that way, I would have missed out on that. And if I'd missed out on what I know I've enjoyed over the last 20 or 30 years. I've been a sad man to miss that, all these things over yeah. the last 30 years. Yeah, that asking, frightens me. Sometimes I think, oh, if I went to Cologne, what would I been doing? Do you know? Where would I be? But then there is another side to that. I could have went to Real Madrid if, if, uh, if you read Salek's book. They had a bid of 800,000 put in for me in his book, which I never knew about because he never told me. In those days, it was after we played 83. I, I vaguely remember the game. Yes, yeah. Cup winners, Cup final. So in his book, which I've never read, <laughs> as you can believe, <laughs> I, uh, it says that he had a bid of £800,000. Then nobody told me. And they, agents couldn't do anything about it. So well, one, that's, that's, that's criminally unfair behaviour. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, in all honesty, given how much of you, I think, still Real Madrid is rumoured, that's a hell of a thing. Yeah. Which must have... So that was... But I've got to say... That even if you said to me, let's join Real Madrid, I cannot see myself enjoying myself more. any more than a half. Like, I, I played for Manchester United, so that's no bad. I, I wasn't looking for... And Real Madrid, oh, and, and Real Madrid weren't the same as Real Madrid now. No. They are Real Madrid, I know that, but not Real Madrid. I think that's what I was getting at, and a man we both respect very much, Art McLeish, for as long as I've known him, which is a lot less time than you, and I respect him hugely, he's always had an itch about continental football, yeah. about going there, about sampling yeah. it, almost unquenchable. Now, there wasn't internet in those days, there wasn't a sky, right? So he had a slightly different mindset, because yeah. I think he always wanted to sample continental football. He did. I know David Moyes, and and that, and that, now he was desperate to get abroad, but you the, didn't... The big man, yeah. Are you talking about management or playing? But I think if he'd been offered Real Madrid, he might have had a different view from you. Like you might I have never got Real Madrid, I got told later on, yeah. that's the thing. But yeah, Alex, a man who tells you about he wants to go and say, well, he stayed at Aberdeen all his career. Never moved. <laughs> Me and him had decided to ask for a transfer on the same day. I got attacked with Sir Alex for asking for a transfer, and Big Alex was going to go in behind me, but it disappeared after he had the ball, and I got... Well, he was a very brave player on the pitch, let me yeah, see Yeah, well, in, I'd in be brave enough, I'd be six foot two and <laughs> gangly. But he did, you know, you know the, the thing I'm talking about, Alex, Alex always had that will to, I want to know what's out there, I want to know what's yeah. happening in these countries. At the time of the Cologne thing, or subsequently, did that not afflict you then? There's no regrets now, and we know why. No. Yeah. None whatsoever. None. I was too busy enjoying myself. 
to sit back and go, oh, listen, there's days where you think we've had a bad day, some think, oh, well, maybe if I went there. That's about it. Just fleeting. So- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Great gift to be satisfied or content with, you know, when you're achieving things and know it and be happy with yeah. what you've got. The thing that I think is underestimated a little bit is the quality of winning the title with Leeds. I think that has <laughs> yeah. slightly slipped under the radar. There was fewer live shows then. I would do respect, I look back at the, the usual starting 11 and there was a fairly close pocket of quality in the centre yeah. of the park and maybe more hard work in other areas. What were those men like that you played the, with? Um, you could remember when we joined there, it was, um, there were about six or seven bottom of the league, the, the league below. But it was the first time I'd come through a difficult period in my life where I felt a bit unwanted, a bit used, um, a bit abused at the same time. So all these kind of things, and I went to a, a club who said to me, listen, this is what I want you to do. This is your job when you join here. I'd never had that before in my life. Because maybe I laugh at life, I laugh during life, people don't take me serious. And I said that to somebody the other day, that I take what I do serious, but I don't take myself serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the first time anybody said, listen, we're signing you, that's what we're giving you, your job is to get us to there. Oh, never had that before, because any club I've joined, it's like, join, play, let's see where we go. Mm-hmm. We achieved where I wanted, just wanted to get out of that division, so we achieved that. And then, because we felt so good of ourselves, it just kept going. It just kept, we never stopped. When we got in that first league, year in the top league, it was fourth, and the next again year we won the thing. Um, so that was... Um, that's a bit... Bl- it was incredible achievement, I think. Because sometimes when you leave Man United, people just curl up and die or you get on with it. But I think it was a love of football. I'd done things that reassured me that I was still as fit. Because I, I took my training times when I was 22 at Aberdeen and I used to look through it through my career. And then I was still using it in Leeds and go, right, I can still achieve that. So I must be still as fit as I was when I was 22. Um, so that always reassured me that I could still run it. I was actually fitter, I think, at 36 than I was at 17, 18 at Dundee, 19, 20 at Dundee. I was fitter then than I was when I played that. You were presumably deploying also the experience that your brain was telling you to do different things, not just how you lived, but how you played, how you trained. Yeah, rest was important, but the intensity, I would say I was covering more miles or kilometres, as you call it now, at 36 than I was at 19 or 20 in the football pitch. I, my, my style wasn't that to walk about and, and take it, even when how Wilkins said, only what to train, I went, nope. Because you can't ask your body only train 80% when Man United's got to ask you to do it 100% when you play against them on the Saturday or Chelsea or whatever. So you have to train at that maximum. Wrestling was right, I picked up things. Kendall Leach, I used to get in my bed every afternoon at 
two o'clock and get up at four. I never went out in the afternoon anywhere. Whether it's golf, I did that. I love golf. Never picked up a golf club in the, the football season, just in case. I think it's strange if you can say to a footballer, they'll go and play golf on a Wednesday or Thursday and walk for five miles up and down hills with a weight in their back. If you say to them, let's come back and train in the afternoon, like, training's got to be, we've got to walk up and down the hills with some weights <laughs> on your back. They go, you must be joking. And you know when you play golf, you're sat up. Well, now, that energy yeah. must be kept because of the, the, uh, the rewards you get in football now. You cannot, it's not like back 50, 40 years ago when you were getting nearly the same as a working man, but you could go and play golf and have a pint in the, the same local. It's changed completely. Everything you do now, because of the riches and whatever the responsibility you've got, has to be to football. And that's why even when the clubs I've been to, I've asked the players not to play golf, not to drink during the week, and I'm the same. I, I, the same rules apply to me. As a leader, that's important to show that you'll do what you're asking of them. It's exactly right. Is that a little bit rare in managers? I've no that, idea. In your I've, experience? I've no idea. Um, then fine, then fine. It's my feeling when I speak to current players or ex-players that they will not always be shown an example by the manager who's asked them to do one thing, or maybe then go and do another. And I suppose in yeah. human psychology, if you're hierarchical only, you it's say, like, It's okay. like we went to Scotland. The first thing we went is, right, there's no alcohol in this. Don't even ask me any time. I don't care whether you beat Jeremy or whatever. There's no alcohol. There's no alcohol in the hotel. Don't ask at any time. Mm -hmm. And then the bombshell come when I say to the staff, you're the same. Mm -hmm. That's never been approached before. The staff can't have a drink. Mm -hmm. Because I'm saying, if you're asking these guys to do it, we can do the same. Mm -hmm. I don't like alcohol. <sighs> Generally, though. No, I think any problem that if you look in football or anything goes, you, you pick any problems, social problems that, that happens in the football, alcohol's involved somewhere. Which would include fan behaviour in our lifetime. Everything. Yeah. So uh, I'm fine when I'm in Spain, because you live there and I live there. Mm -hmm. But people don't fight, scrap, mm -hmm. do the rest of it. Even the football teams, you very rarely hear them singing and dancing in, in no. a hotel, which we've had recently here. Does so it, it's a protection for players as well, to make sure that uh, they don't get themselves in trouble. So but you would argue, and it would be very easy to hear that argument. That I did drink when I, when I played. Yeah, okay. I did drink alcohol, because that was the environment I got brought up in. I presume uh, you mean it, you drank a little. Oh, a little, yeah. I'm not talking about drinking. Every, I'm talking about drunk at the weekend after the games, and uh, maybe a Wednesday night after the game. But I, I, I learned through Alec Ferguson that this is it, we're disciplined. And I drunk at Man United on a Saturday, which is that's part of the contract. I think you looked at your contract with Ryan <laughs> Robson, like you say, McGrath, you had to drink. <laughs> Allegedly, um, there was a group who knew <laughs> where the pub was. Yes, I think that's established. <laughs> right, so, um, yeah, but then I've learned all but, these things myself. But, but, okay, but the point when you began to go... I can't do this anymore. That was because you were learning yourself. No, I but could somebody do it, showed but you. I didn't want to. I mustn't do, do it. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's especially I mean. when I become a manager. I think that's when I went, oi. Mm. That's a, at Leeds, I used to socialise. and I used to, We used to meet every month on a Saturday night, all the players and the wives have a drink. And that was it. So we got together. But when I become a manager, I thought, nah, this is wrong. This is wrong. No, that was coming in. I think I had a drink one day when I first did the concert. I woke up with the same problems with a hangover. Mm. It's hard to deal with, mm. and I'm asking these players. But you know, so since then, although it's clear that what you're saying is making obvious sense, and I'm not being sanctimonious because I live a little bit differently to that. So I'm not mucking about now. I'll, I'll, I'll go and have a drink, and that's fine because that's my choice. But during my journalistic career, I had dealings with a manager who I like very much, and who's been very successful, and who very strongly advocated that if you drink together, 
as a group. Yeah. You win together. Now, I'm not in any way attacking that, but even the position you've taken as a manager goes against something that's been built up in the British culture, that you can make sporting bonds, you can make team bonds by going through drinking sessions or drinking regularly yeah. together. Now, I, you don't I, believe I, that. I feel that's false, because when we get a drink, there's a false bravado. And these kind of drinking things, I would say that a lot of times people follow each other. And they also say, right, we'll go play golf together, we'll go and play go-karts together, we'll go and whatever together. Yeah. But basically, winning together bonds you. Yeah. Winning and getting beat together and dealing with defeat together, and you hurt, you know. If you walk into a dressing room, you see the, this group. I remember the first couple of results with Scotland. You're looking at it, just pop my head in, and the coaching staff, the, the backroom staff, everybody were jumping about enjoying themselves. And you just walk and go, that's nice, good, and walk out again. That's what gets a team spirit. Winning gets a team spirit. The rest of it is a nonsense. The victory is an elixir, and if you're any kind of normal sportsman, you want it again and again because almost. Even get, oh, I've never had my £500,000 a week wage check, but even yeah. getting that, I don't think can beat the adrenaline and the satisfaction of I winning. I don't think so. The top players, they will go on, your Dalgleishes, your Sierras, all these kind of guys that have played at the top, they never thought about money. It just come to them because they were good. Yeah. The problem we've got is a group just in behind. The top players are fantastic. And then you've done here, you've got the club players who are fantastic. But what we've done in, in football is drag two or three players who are not as good as the good ones up into a wage bracket where they think where they're they good ones. Be. Shouldn't be there. They're there by default. They're there by the good players. And every club will cherry, they're the two, three players that you spend all the time on. When proper resting, when you rotate is the term now that's used, is some of the things that you're taking away, the constant stress that we're talking about, about the responsibility in games, that you're constantly on television, that you're also constantly in demand from advertisers, from marketers, in a way that however famous you were in your yeah. playing career, that it's has changed. Like Absolutely. The travel, the constant Champions League travel. The, now, the, again, the, people will laugh when they listen to this podcast, but I would contend, and you can slap me down if I'm wrong, that constantly on a plane, constantly on a bus to the airport, constantly on a hotel, takes a toll on your freshness, your acuity, your ability to make great decisions under pressure. Now, is that nonsensical or is there something in there about the resting concept? I can see that because I, I actually got fed up with, not football, no. when I was older, I got fed up wearing a tracksuit, believe it or not. I can't wear a tracksuit this day. I can't wear a tracksuit. It reminds me of just travelling around the world and going to hotel. Hotel rooms, I couldn't get in another hotel yeah. room. So I've got that. Saying that just now, it's, it's a different environment because if Aberdeen were playing somewhere in Romania, it'd be with your own boots in your hand, Aberdeen to uh, London, London to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Bucharest and a bus to wherever we went. Now it's, you can go for, yeah. if you play with Liverpool and a plane that's got a bed, straight there and back again. I grant you. And they, could, and they could be getting back, it's, it was worse than us getting back from Kilmarnock yeah. on a Wednesday on Morton. So the, the, the travelling thing is... We've established is, that, that however it, it was, you up there this day, it's a factor. It, it can wear you down. But I remember saying to Robert Yarney when I signed him for a day at Coventry. Good player. Good player. So he, he signed for a day. <laughs> he just finished the World Cup. I said, do you want a couple of days off? And he went, no. I'll join training the first day, he says, because footballers now have to think all year round. No rest for top footballers. Yeah. And I think that's the same for all top footballers now, that... Rest will come naturally sometimes to an injury. That's when your body says, Oi, you've had enough. Mm. Have a rest. You know, the, the smart coaches and all these kind of guys, and they'll say, Oh, he's fatigued, he's level this, he's level that. 
we better keep him out of two games there, two games there, two games there. So you're missing a good player for six, eight games a season. The one injury he might have gave him four or three weeks. He yep. gets that rest then, and he's fine. So he gets a natural break. Yep. You touched on something in terms of Naka doing extra work, and I want to just touch on Cantona at Leeds because I think the myth of what he did subsequently, I think it's probably added a little bit to how much he gave to Leeds in the championship yeah. season. I could be wrong, but clearly he was still an extraordinary talent and interesting and wide-ranging personality. What was it like to work with him, and what impact did he have on that club in that year? Oh, listen, he, he made a difference. Oh, really? to one. Yeah, he made a big difference. And he didn't play a lot of games. No. But his presence was just what we were needing at that time when we were starting to get a bit tired. He made a difference. He was a guy you couldn't get close to. He kept himself in cell, even in the bus, which is understandable because his English wasn't great at that time. That's not a problem. People think, well, it was a bad move, but it really wasn't because it, his time at Leeds were up. He's got to go somewhere. Why did you say He's that? Just, we couldn't accommodate him. Our whole thing was just what what, what, what. We didn't have, as you said before, we didn't have that great all-round team. Eric kind of put up with us for a while while he enjoyed it. And then things went to go wrong in a couple of European ties. Eric wasn't at his best. There was kind of loggerheads between the manager, Eric, and somebody else going, you need to work a wee bit, just help us a wee bit, Eric. But mm. Eric was like, well, this is what I do. Mm. It's fine. So he left to go to Man United, and again, it's like the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. What Man United were needing was Eric Cantona. What Eric Cantona was needing was Man United. Now, you've got to remember that Eric was never a real success in any club he went to. No. Any, he had loads of them. He was in trouble with, you know, in every club he went to. Not even a terrific success for the national team, I'd have to say. No, no that's no. what I'm saying. So, no. if you think about him as a player, take all his top games outside Man United. There's no many left. So, it was a perfect storm there with that young side, that angry manager and hungry manager plus him, and getting the adulation he always wants. Mm. So the perfect storm was there. It, it wasn't us. You could, could put up with us, and we could put up with him for a certain amount of time at Leeds, and vice versa. But when he moved on to there, that was it, you know? So I'd speculate that this famous thing which educated me about him regarding there's training, but there's practice. And oh, he, he practised a lot. He, he, did. he still did that? He did that, yeah. He did that when life was good. He'd, he would take two kids... They'd put balls over and he'd volley the ball in the back of the net. So when he'd done it at Man United, I used to say, well, it's not a fluke. No. That's what he practised. Would he have been in that group with there have been others who shared that mentality? Gar- Gary Speed and people like that, yeah. Gary was always with him. David Batty, you know, these kind of lads. I mean, with due respect to the other footballers, I think you've touched on, I was meaning, the tight pocket of quality. Maybe Tony aside, it was you. David Batty, Gary, Eric. It, it, that was a, an extraordinary midfield. That must have been fun to play in for you. Because I think, again, you've talked about people misinterpreting you and your skill stands out. Yeah. But you were always an extreme team player, I thought. I enjoyed the winning. And I was, oh, always, yeah. I was always an angry man during the game because I was captain there. And I just I felt constantly angry. I just had to be angry to get players playing and me playing and what to win games. And you weren't putting it on. It was, no, no, it was I was constantly angry. Yeah. Is that a Scottish thing? Nah, I don't know. I'd be generalising. It's me. It'll do for me. Listen, maybe we're going to tail to your time is, is precious. But we're going to tail off. I've always been fascinated. You can tell me we've got to stop. You're yeah, the boss. You watch the boss. time. Yep. You went to try and learn from other sports, and I'm fascinated yeah. about why people don't do that. Why don't people don't think laterally more often? Mm. And all right, listen, we can't do the whole thing in this conversation. But which sports knocked you out, and you said, 
I like what they're doing. I can learn from that. That's transferable. Why don't we do it like that? And did you enjoy that learning process? I did. I went to a couple. I, mean, I went to Australian rules football. Aussie that, rules football. Thing. I could tell you about the cut-off sleeves, and that would be the end. Oh, of it. It's a f- fascinating game, but there's humour in it as well, which I thought was great. And I spent three or four days with them. And I actually in which city? And it, it was in uh, Melbourne. Okay. But I watched them in Canberra, then I watched them in Melbourne, and I flew a bit with the team and the coach. And uh, they lost a game. They, they led from the start, and they only went behind on the last kick of the ball. It was a ridiculous score of 111-112, and the coach was bonkers. And they, they come and train next again day in a normal warm-up, and he said to other midfield players, right, in the gym was a boxing ring. He says, right, the whole midfield players... <laughs> Yous are fighting each other now. <laughs> Seriously, boxing gloves on. Never mind carrying golf bags around in the hills. And, and I, I, I can't believe it. The guy I was with said, I think he's serious. And they got in the boxing ring, one midfield player. Then, but the captain come in, is that because the rest I had to do in gym work? And the captain went, just a second, to the coach. She says, uh, what's this? He said, well, the midfield players, they lost the game. And the captain went, yeah, but we played as well. So we're in. So they all queued up. And you had to have two rounds against each other. And, oh, dear, oh, dear. And they went at it? Oh, aye. There was real punches thrown. But what what I'm saying is that he went, no, we're all all together. Yeah, the bond. So that that boxing was far better than going drinking. (laughs) I couldn't. Point cleverly. I went, whoa, hey. But that's different. And that's standing up and being counted. Instead of standing back going, aye, the midfield did it. We've gone in there for a bit. Then you could see that the other guy's going, but we might as well join in here. And it was ridiculous because there was guys. There was one guy who was a, a particularly good boxer, and he was a. You get one round with one, and you get another round with somebody else, and again it overlaps. So you always get two. Yeah. And he fought two guys. I kid you not, their faces were all over the place, but they kept going forward. In which case, I'm supposing that if you went to look at NFL or golf or whatever, you learned a wide rainbow of different lessons about recuperation. I don't Sports know. psychology, the whole thing. Psychology is at the key of everything. Psychology is okay one for one. Hmm. As a sports manager, and people say, well, when's your psychology work? I say, it's every second of the day. I've got to look like a leader, behave like a leader, look after players. Well, it's the first thing on Monday morning when I come in because the steward will say to the receptionist, he's a bit down, mm-hmm. he's this, he's beat. You've got to walk in there and convince everybody in that building that you're ready for this next game coming up. And he was like that, Ferguson, and, and you try and do your best the same. Sports psychologists, when you're doing your university studies, is basically make somebody better. That's what you do. Help them. It's not that way in sports, this, in the footballing world. I have 25, 26 players, say Alec Ferguson, he only needs to make 14 feel better for that weekend game. Mm-hmm. The rest, deal with it. Mm-hmm. I'll deal with you later. You know, if you're down, tough. If you feel bad about yourself, boop. If you feel like bursting into tears, which many has had, after the abuse that you get, tough, deal with it. I'll bring you back into the fold when you're ready to come back in the fold. In sports psychology, uh, you, you're the man, you're the manager, you're the sports psychologist at a club. Okay, some people might need individual help, problems on and off the pitch. Sports psychologists might help, might help with things. But it generally it's the, the football manager who's a sports psychologist. I remember watching Ernie Els, and he's disappeared again, the sports psychologist. When he was winning, he always had a sports psychologist beside him. Always stand beside him on the green. And I remember the interview about Ernie and the sports psychologist and somebody asked him, do you have any other players? He went, yeah, well, I've got about another 15. We'll get out and help them because they've not made the cut. Ernie's doing okay. Ernie's doing all right. And you've watched the thing with sports psychologists, they seem to turn up when things are going well. 
I think one turned up to help England. Who was Liverpool one? And he turned I, I, up. I have and no, he's got to do this and I do that. I have no comment to make what this guy's worked in, but Luis Enrique has brought a sports psychologist with him and he is like a limpet to him everywhere at Barcelona. Yeah. I say that without comment. I've met him, I've watched him. But when Luis Enrique's talking to media, sports psychologist on his right shoulder, when he goes into a one on one interview room like this, the sports psychologist is in there with him. Now, I'm not sure if he's assessing and listening to his clients saying, well, what I would have done or the next thing. And I know that the players, even these elite players at Barcelona, yeah. are like, hold on now, that's, that's witchcraft. Take it away. Yeah. And I, it's I think, a difficult process. Yeah, I think that's a problem because you are what you are. You cannot. And that's what the players want. They want you to lead them. Mm -hmm. Know this voice coming from the side yeah. into the head and past it. They want you to be the leader. They want you to lose your temper in an interview because you've decided, I'm not going to listen to you because you've said my players are not very good. I'm telling you they're good. And I'm telling you they're right. I'm telling you the right players, and they'll become, and they go, oh yeah, he's, he's defending us, you know. He's, they're not want another voice coming through to talk. This one to talk to this. What one at Southampton as well? And they go, oh, she burst into tears. She couldn't handle the players. She couldn't handle the players. We went to Liverpool next again day after her burst into tears. And I had to go to the because Rupert had her there before I got there, and we went and beat Liverpool two one. It's no problem. If Ferguson was the best sports, the way he went about it. You would go, well, you couldn't get away with any other business apart from sport. Ruthless. And, and ruthless. Often unfair. Yeah, you would think it was unfair. And it could, put, it could scar people for life, some people. But just, you could say about Leo Messi, like, <clears throat> okay, he plays like that, but we won't see anybody else. Mr. Ferguson had a phenomenal ability to feed off that chain of, I'm in charge and you'll do this and strengthen himself. Whereas I think the normal human being gets tired out by that. Yeah. I think what, it what, breaks you. I think, yeah, it's right. But it fed him. Well, he worked on anger. That was his petrol. He was only at his best when he's angry. And, and to be fair, and I'm not, trust me, I'm, I'm not going to say anything like him. When I was a football player, when I was angry, I was a better player. Mm -hmm. Anger made me more focused, more determined, yeah. And that's why I say when you're asking me about Leeds, I just seem to be angry all the time. Was it doing you damage subsequently when you... No. No, well, I mean, I'm asking seriously I could, I could go away for it and not be angry anymore. On and off? Aye. As I've seen... I think if you spoke to me, if you spoke to anybody spotting me, you spend most of your time laughing. As I've seen, he can do. For all that it appeared that you were in the full force of the hurricane with him, 90% yeah. of the time it was manufactured or turned on. Now, the anger was real there, I know, but oh, I thought real. he was a very... Listen, I, I only see... If you listen to this... Most of this stuff I see... He's a very manipulative man. Aberdeen, when he was a young manager, and us in the same dressing room, you pay thousands to see it, millions to see the, what went on in there. Because there was people who thought they knew what was going on, because we've all been managers most of that team, yeah. and we all thought we knew the game. And then he'd come in. The raw energy in the room was quite frightening. It was incredible. It was something I wouldn't have missed for the wall. It was fantastic. So you won't sneer at me if I say that by being a fan for my club, which I care about passionately yeah. still, I'll still be an idiot and travel everywhere with a red scarf on, and I'll always be that way, and I don't care. But by watching and listening and watching you lot under him change the boundaries and say, we can beat them. Yeah. We can go there and we can beat them. I went, I can do that too. Now, I think that's a, a little ripple in the pond effect from him. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, he, yeah. The world's yours if you want to take uh, it. As, it's, as it's, fans who used to go to the box and just go there, yeah, I've actually gone down there with a strut. And that's what we had, a strut. It wasn't a... It was a confidence. I don't think it was an arrogance. It was a confidence that we, we trusted each other mm -hmm. and vice versa. The fans trusted the players and we trusted. So you had this group all marching down to Glasgow. Here you, we go. I tell you, it felt and it. And matter of fact, you actually took it for granted after a while. <laughs> yes. 
not complacency, but a belief that it you would do, keep they've on got happening. to be there because somebody said about getting the Scottish Cup final. And I remember a point where we used to think, well, we, we're going there every week, every year. That's where we go. Oh, we went down to Hamden. We knew you'd win. We, go, we knew you'd win. We go, we go every year. We're off again. Let's go. That's um, that's the past. This is the present. This has been a joy. I, I knew I would enjoy it. And I, I hoped I wouldn't ask stupid questions or bore you. We've still got the biscuits here. Now's your chance to say that I did. I'm going to ask you to do this again in the future because uh, we covered about a millionth of what I wanted to know. We will do that. Okay. We will Listen. do that. Please do it in Barcelona. Thanks for... Oh, no, so now we can probably arrange that, but not in my flat. Listen, come to the game at any time. Messi often asks about you. Ah, I bet so the, the flickering pictures from Pataudry often inspired them. In <laughs> I'm going to stop joking now and say that you gave me extraordinary uh, happiness in my life, and it's been a pleasure and privilege chatting to you. Thank well, I've had a good afternoon. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you. We recorded that podcast on a beautiful sunny London day on the south bank of the Thames River long before Scotland played Ireland in Dublin so when we recorded it I didn't know exactly how many goals we'd stick past the Irish but what I do know is that chat gave you a clear insight into why the Scottish football team has been catalyzed by that man. Listen to his tone, listen to his intelligence, listen to his insistence. He's got the demeanour, the intelligence, the experience and the delivery of a man used to leading, leading on principle, leading on intelligence, leading on passion for the game. I enjoyed it. I really hope you did too. There's going to be more of these. That is if you if you do one or two things for me. First of all, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Audioboom or wherever you picked it up from. It's free. Secondly, if you liked it and you've got the time, please do leave a short review. That specifically helps us make more free content like this. Finally, keep up with who's coming next and indeed all my news at my own website, grahamhunter.tv. This podcast was produced by Backpage Press and me, Graham Hunter. Thank you very much to Nigel at dirtandglorymedia.com for the use of the brilliant, huge, sprawling office space on the south bank of the Thames. Thanks for listening. We should keep doing this. I like meeting you in this way. Talk soon.